Good evening, everyone. Um, I think there might be some people stuck in traffic still, but we're going to make a start and, uh, and possibly be interrupted by latecomers a little bit. But um, hello, my name is Jodie Marks, Exhibitions and Events Curator at the Architecture Centre, which is next door. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome you here this evening. And as usual, I'd like to thank the team at Arnolfini for hosting us here. Uh, this evening is the second in our series of design thinking talks, which we're co-presenting with UE Bristol's Department of Architecture and the Built Environment. Um, as part of our ongoing partnership between our organisations, uh, we're pleased to continue to work together in this particular forum here today to present great award-winning design as a means of promoting discussion and debate, and also to inspire and inform. Um, shortly, I'll hand over to this evening's speakers, Chris Loyne, who's going to speak for about an hour, and then um, Matt Jones, who's architect and senior lecturer at, lecturer at UE Bristol, will uh, come up and host the question and answer session with Chris at the end. Um, and we, we have got roaming mics for that, as usual, and um, we do ask you to form your questions uh, while you're listening, um, but also to wait for the microphone. Um, before you speak um, so that everyone's able to hear the question and also as we're recording the talk um, it means that people listening afterwards can also hear it too. Um, so thank you in advance for, for that. Um, next year we are continuing the design thinking series uh, with Wait For It Design Thinking 3 and Design Thinking 4. Um, both will take place in March 2017 and uh, we'll be revealing details on those in the new year. So do sign up to our newsletter and keep an eye out for, for updates on those. Um, before that though, the Architecture Centre's final event this year will be next door at the Architecture Centre on Thursday the 8th of December at 6 o'clock when we host Jeff Bishop who will be presenting Bristol through maps, exploring how we visualise the city. Um, this coincides with Jeff's book, um, which has been recently published, and we have got some copies for sale from our back office, uh, which cost £20, and you'll also be able to buy them on the night. So that promises to be a really fascinating talk, um, and you can book your place through Eventbrite um, via, our, via the Architecture Centre website. Um, also in our gallery next door, until the 23rd of December, we have the Made in Bristol festive pop-up shop with design-led gifts for yourself and others. Um, and we also have a small exhibition in the front area, which is about um, our 20th anniversary artist commission by Jenny Savage uh, called Sounding City. And this began as an exploration of people and place in Bristol, uh, and um, amongst other things, uh, involved UE students in a rapid design and build of a temporary stage uh, for the performance of commis specially commissioned um, songs by local, uh, by local musicians. And the songs are then pressed onto an LP, which you can listen to and also uh, in our gallery, and you can also hear on SoundCloud as well. So do check that out, both the shop and uh, Sounding Cities on until just before Christmas. Um, but back to this evening's event, um, I'd like to introduce and welcome this evening's speaker, Chris Loyne, from multiple award-winning practice Loyne & Co, based in Penarth in Wales. Um, Chris spoke at the Architecture Centre about a year and a half ago, after the practice won the 2014 RBA Manson Medal, which is now the RBA House of the Year Award. Uh, he won that for Stormy Castle, which is a codified family home in Wales. And we're now pleased to welcome Chris back to Bristol again to speak to a much larger, larger audience here um, and to cover uh, another home, Outhouse, which is in the for Forest of Dean. So Outhouse was on this year's RBA Sterling Prize shortlist and as of last week was also announced uh, on Grand Designs as one of the first on the shortlist for the 2016 RBA House of the Year. The winner of that will be announced on the 15th of December and we wish Chris best of luck for that. Um, 
So the practice puts strong emphasis on team working in order that they create the most creative, imaginative and fulfilling design solutions. Their design approach means um, that the response to a client's brief uh, rigorously addresses the constraints and potential of each specific site and its context. And this can be seen with a project such as Outhouse, which has been described as being founded on rigour and restraint. And here to tell us more, and without further ado, please join me in welcoming Chris Loyne. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jody. Um, the scene, it's, it's interesting, two houses, two homes, and we're on the second one, so I, you can tell I did this purposefully and specifically for this tonight's session. Two houses, two homes. Now, I make a differentiation between house and home, and it, it arose, actually, from the Mansa Medal winning in 2014. Fantastic. The Mansa, it, it means something to us as architects. Um, and then the RBA decided to shift it and take it away from the Mansa family and actually make it House of the Year. And I got a little bit uffy about that. Of house, you know, we, we design homes. But then you, the more you think about it, house, home. Yes, if you're doing a one-off house, you are working with a client to form spaces and volumes. But ultimately, it's how they occupy that house that really turns it into a home. And a lot of us don't live in purpose-designed houses that are made for us. We live in second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, whatever, older properties. And you take it over and you inhabit it and you make it your own. And these two houses, the first one, yes, in, in Gower, Stormy Castle, a mere 8,000 square feet. Probably most of us don't live in 8,000 square feet. And the second one, Outhouse, Forest of Dean, 5,000 square feet. Big properties. But the lessons that we've learned from doing these big projects, I believe, are absolutely, and the elements of those houses, are absolutely transferable to housing generally, speculative homes. You, you take the ingredients and you learn from the ingredients that you're allowed to do on these bigger projects and refine them and put them into our housing for everyday people like you and myself. So it's a really, it's an interesting differentiation between house and home. And look at the way the two different clients of these two properties have occupied the houses. So let's start with Stormy Castle in the Gower. The similarity between the two schemes, they're both in areas of outstanding natural beauty. They're both large properties. They're both earth shelters hunkered into a hillside. Because in both instances, Forest of Dean and the Gower, it's not the architecture that is the speciality of the area. It's not that. that the, the architectural heritage is, in both areas is not that great. It is the landscape. That's, there's a clue in it. Area of outstanding natural beauty. So here we go, Stormy Castle. That's the site. Extraordinary site to be asked. Let's see if I can. Pardon, pardon? Save the battery. Very good. Still not. Oh, got it. Right. That is Stormy Castle. That's the house that was on the site. There was an existing house on the uh, Forest of Dean project as well. That's it sitting on the escarpment from the sort of southeast, slightly skew. And that's it from the other side, from the northwest. So it really sat right on 
the back of that hill, very prominent, and beautiful, beautiful views. Further up the hill was the Bulwark. It's an old Iron Age hill fort. So a very special area. And there we are. We've got to design, according to the client's brief, 8,000 square feet of new build house. We started with a site analysis, a huge site analysis. Everything is about context. And interestingly, when we're looking at our speculative housing, when we're looking at housing types, we're constantly thinking, well, what, what is the context that these houses these are, are going to be put into? If you don't know them, you work with the things that you do know. And they are things like, if the sun rises over there, morning rooms should face that way. Get that light in. Follow the path of the sun. And use the things that you know about. Prevailing wind. They are the constants. So it's context and nature. Sketched, sketched, and sketched. Getting to know the site, playing with forms. That's my drawing board. I still use a drawing board. And these are the walls of my little studio space, packed with drawings of Stormy Castle, variations, overlays. And I think that hand-eye contact and the power of drawing is still very relevant today. And you can see forms. Here's the hillside sloping. They're both hillside sites, Forest of Dean and the Gower site. And because it's called Stormy Castle, at one point I was playing with a tower. That went pretty, pretty early. Not the best of ideas. And there were existing buildings that we decided to retain on the site. How are you going to fit in these new huge amounts of accommodation in relation to the 1,200, 1,500 square feet of the original 19th century house that was on the site that had been beautifully 1970s-ized with gorgeous... It was a lovely plastic sunroof. Oh, it was beautiful. Mm, too hot in summer, too cold in winter. Dreadful. After a while, the form started to appear. We were looking at a subterranean wing here as we stepped down and studied the contours, a central wing and an upper wing. And we started exploring that from the views, common land on this side of the wall. There was the existing, um, it was, it was a, a, a little outbuilding that we kept, a stone outbuilding. We liked it and it was attached to what we called the umbilical wall, of this boundary that separated the site, some 12 acres. Uh, from the common land and at the bottom of the wall was another building so it's sort of hooked you'll see it in the site plans as we go here we are so there you have the uh, um, existing retained building here's the umbilical wall down to what became the gatehouse there was the existing driveway up here and we looked at cutting these three wings into the hill as they stepped up, connected then by one central circulation spot that tied all three together. You see, this became the bedroom wing, this became the eating, dining area, and this became the living. This was the TV area, cinema room, umbilical cord wrapping down here. And the only way that you could see, once we started threading and embedding this building into the hill, the only way you could actually see the whole mass and the whole complex of the scheme was from this, either in a Chinook or you're a buzzard. 
one or the other. And that was, in, of course, intentional because we wanted the landscape to be the main driving aesthetic. We didn't want to impose something on the site. To quote Frank Lloyd Wright, we wanted to make it of the hill. And that's the final site plan. Here is the gatehouse, driveway entrance up, entrance area here, garage is buried, the lowest bedroom wing here. And it, because it's on a hill, part of the client's brief had been they wanted some flat space. It's, it's, it's a rarity on a hill. So we used the roofs, hence this is the idea of the concrete earth shelter structure. I detest uh, light tubes. They feel like fluorescent lights. If you're going to get light into a building, put light in. Put a big roof light. Or, as in this instance, a series of narrow plan spaces that get the light from the one side, sometimes from two sides, where we've cored out courtyards. We've actually excavated out of the hill. So you drop light in, hidden but it gives sheltered spaces, because that's the other thing. The prevailing wind, both Gower and Forrester Dean, more so in the Gower, the southwesterlies coming in, across the Lacher estuary, are really quite extreme. The materials we're talking about, it makes sense to use concrete for an earth shelter, structurally. And because of the Welsh farmers who like to leave all their rusty bits and bobs out to go and deteriorate, we thought that would be an interesting material to use. Core 10. Um, it was also driven by the colour of the bracken as well. And we developed a, a concept diagram uh, called Three Lines in a Landscape. It, how it was with no buildings at all, how it is now with a little retained outbuilding, the 1970s delightful house and the gatehouse, and what we're planning to do, which is keep the little fella there, but build in these three wings and keep the gatehouse there. And that was, that's the plan, the umbilical cord, and around, and what we call a pavilion building right at the top. It gets fantastic views, both in a southeasterly and northwesterly direction. And we plopped it onto a computer. You can still see these are the three lines. Started to develop the, the, the brief in more detail complicated, but that's the retained building at the top. Here is the living pavilion area and Eric's office client. Uh, and stepping down the site, that's the pavilion gable as you go lower into the site. Here is the cord out courtyard that brings southerly light into this connecting link. So it's nowhere that doesn't have fresh air and nowhere in this building that doesn't have natural light. And then the lower end, the bedroom wing, sleeping wing. And as I said, the only way that you can see it really is if you're a, in a Chinook. And uh, the Gower Society, planners were fantastic on this project. Um, a chap called Steve Smith is an architect planner for Swansea and was very supportive of it. He recognised that actually a lot of the architecture in Gower is pretty shocking. Um, and he wanted something fresh and new and something sensitive to the landscape. Um, he was very supportive. The Gower Society a little less interested in it. Well, they were interested in it, but a little less enthusiastic. And the chairman has, a, has his own plane, actually. 
and he takes it upon himself to fly around the Gower looking for unlawful developments and such. And uh, he photographed the finished article and was horrified and sent a letter to the local rag saying, oh, it's nothing like the architect's drawings. There's no trees and planting. Well, I, I don't think he's quite right and quite fair on that, but the, the point is that architecture takes time and landscape takes time to mature. You scar the site. You really do scar the site when you build something like this. But it recovers. If you've planned and thought about it, it takes time to mature. And it should get better over time, not worse. I, it shocks me that I see a lot of particularly commercial buildings that are good, good on day one. And you see them four years later, and they're just falling apart. And that, I think, is quite worrying. So. Did, did it look like the architect's drawings? Well, I think that's not bad. I mean, you know, that's my planning drawing. That's it in reality. I thought he was being a bit harsh. Anyway, there we go, moving on. That's what we saw looking, that's, that's how most people see the building. They ain't in Chinooks or, or flapping around up in the sky. You're seeing it from ground level. And uh, it's one of the reasons I, I really encourage people to draw in three dimensions and not just in elevations. Elevations, yeah, you've got to have them, but they're not that useful. This is the true picture. And um, that's it, walking along the common, heading up and from above the common by the bulwark, the, the, the fort, looking down on it. And the impact was much, much less from the real human scale from the public domain. And that's similar as well with outhouses, you'll see later. Did it look like this when we built it? Well, yeah, again, I think that's pretty close. You know, not, not a bad attempt. And you can see where the rusty court end sits in with the landscape at a particular time of year. At this early stage, we're also working out details because otherwise you think you're designing a thoroughbred horse and you end up with a camel. So if you know what you're doing at this stage, what you draw actually has meaning and you see we're, we're working out the concrete details very early. I think that's essential. And we made models. Great ways of communicating and checking yourself to make sure that what you think you want is actually going to become a reality. That's the reality of a site. That's scarring a site. Now, in an area of outstanding natural beauty, it could have been a big oops. That's the entrance area from almost the same view. And that's it built. Now, yes, there's no landscaping yet, but this is at the point of completion before we've planted anything. So it does look bald and hard. And you only see this mass of the building if you're invited onto the site. Similar thing with outhouse, you'll see that. You have to go in to actually appreciate what is actually hunkered into that hill. And then the plants start to take over. And my friend in his aeroplane, I haven't heard from him since. And it gets better. And it starts to bed in. And nature takes over again. Hey. 8,000 square feet, it's not offensive if you consider the context. Let's go inside. This is the entrance area. Part of the philosophy of Stormy Castle was 
this agrarian um, roughness, if you like, on the outside. And then as you progress through the building, so the quality of the concrete becomes more refined and the finishes become a little bit sharper, to say the least. Entrance hall, a core 10 warming fire. Down the stairs, the little narrow stairs there to the left, it takes you down to the bedroom wing, more private. The wider, grander, party-goers entrance. And ahead of you, the kitchen living, which is there. You're up at that half level. It's all half levels as it steps up the hillside, following the contours. And the reason that we um, introduced this element was almost to, to give an impression of one slab being folded up the hill. It wraps around. And look at that for a view. Not bad over the Lacharest you're in Llanethli beyond. This is a huge sliding wall. So you can actually close that off. Either to be in there when it's blowing a hoolie and in the midwinter if you want to hunker down a bit. Or if you've got a whole load of people coming and you just want them in this part of the house. So you build in flexibility. And that's the sort of thing, as I was saying, for general housing that we ought to be looking at. We're all different. And if you don't know specifically who you're designing for, we should be building in that degree of flexibility so that people can enjoy a property, a home, the way they want to live. Turn to your left from that last photograph. You've got the mainstays here that take you up to the pavilion. Or alternatively, straight ahead, another folded up bit of slab and a half level. And on the left here, you can't see it from this shot, you'll see it later, is the sort of dining space. This is before he's inhabited it. He's not that minimalist. He has got a couple of paintings up on a wall and a table or chair or two. But this is how they live. This is how they want to live. And it's interesting, again, I would love to take the two clients from Houthas and from Stormy Castle and swap them and see what they made of each other's houses. It would be the, the occupation again. But this is the way Eric and Debbie wanted to live. If you travel up these stairs and back up here, you also arrive at the pavilion, which is directly above here. So it's, it's a loop. You can follow your, your way around. There are no dead ends in the building either. I did not pick that city. Okay? <coughs> that was client choice. I think it's quite good that they haven't got too many pieces of furniture in the house. Um, there are fantastic views in a southerly direction here and all the way along the coastline here towards Pendine in the other direction. Fireplace, heart of the home. Right down from the top of the house now, plop into the master bedroom, and this is the cord-out courtyard that catches the south light that is sheltered. It's a beautiful spot. And you need those sort of protected areas when you're on an exposed site. And you can see now how the landscape has really started to take over the building. This is the office facing due south, hence we introduced the sun louvers to stop it overheating, all driven by nature. This, the media room barn with the court end roof, and this drops you down into the lower eating, to the kitchen basically, to the eating wing. So, again, you get light in through to the back of that kitchen dining area. 
although it's still, it has a mount of glass, as I showed you earlier, looking over the Lacare estuary. Fantastic views. The building in itself, I think, is really quite an artwork. But again, it's back to this thing of nature. I love the way glass enables you to look through and have eyes in the back of your head, back, and you get these layers. That is a straight photograph at the pavilion level, looking through the pavilion, seeing the view beyond, and seeing the reflection. It creates, creates a picture all of its own. And the geometries, and the tones, and the colours. That's the front door looking out, the glass front door. And to quote Shakespeare, it's, it's rather like a sundial, and thou by the, the, the dial's shady stealth may knowest time's thievish progress to eternity. You can watch time go by in this building because there are markers all the way around that tells you what time of day it is. If you've ever been in an office block where you're hunkered in and you don't know what time of day it is, awful. And too many houses don't, don't tell you that. Don't let you see the outside and relate to the weather and to the time of day. We also had artworks. Eric was interested. That, that is Eric. I, I refer to Eric, even though it was Eric and Debbie, the two clients, because they took the view that one person had to deal with the architects, and they agreed that, De that um, Eric was going to be it. Debbie was involved, but he was a point of contact. Um, so um, very much our direct client. Um, but he commissioned this chap, Richard Powell, because we, we didn't want glass balustrades on all of the roof terraces. Um, so we decided, actually, what we would do, it's on the common, it's everywhere, we'd use gorse instead. Now, you try telling a building inspector, no, I'm not going to have any uh, balustrades on this roof, I'm going to have gorse. <laughs> didn't like it. I took him there, showed him a gorse bush, I said, run through it. We got gorse. <laughs> you won't go through gorse. And so the, that became a driving force for the external elevation. And this was designed and made by Richard Powell. And it fills in that dining room void where the south light, you can see it pouring in. And it's this beautiful little piece of sculpture. And we also had an artist in residence working right the way through the project from the demolitions of the existing house. And she. Philippa Robbins is her name. She painted 60 or 70 beautiful watercolours showing the process and got particularly fascinated by the clamps that he used to make the concrete walls, the shuttering for the concrete walls. And um, got the concrete um, chaps to donate, I think it was 100 and something of these <laughs> clamps, and she called it Flock. And they're, they're for sale if anybody wants to buy any. She's still got a few. Been on exhibition, but it's great to integrate art and architecture, and you'll see that even more so in the uh, outhouse project. Good night, Stormy Castle, as you leave the evening shot. On to the next project, outhouse. This is a shot of the ceiling. It's a concrete lid. Totally one of those happy accidents. They put the shutter in down, they were about to do a pour, a leaf fluttered down, it landed there, they did the pour. When we struck the, the formwork, there was that beautiful imprint. And, and it fascinated us, and you'll see we've used it elsewhere as a result of that. 
So here we are. Michael and Jean, two artists. They'd lived in the Forest of Dean for many years. And they were leaving a, a, a Tudor farmhouse that sucked up gallons of oil and leaked heat everywhere. And they were they are very conscious about climate and climate change, and they wanted a thermally efficient house. Their brief was to have a, a, a low energy, low impact, single story, live work property. Um, they wanted two studios and uh, three bedrooms, and it's 500 square meters of house. That's the site. This is the upper meadow viewed from the public, I say highway, it's a tiny little lane, which was quite interesting when we tried to bring the crane on site, you'll see later, and there was an existing house on, on the land. There's Michael and Jean, self-portrait by Michael, the two artists, as I say, and Jean on her scooter, because they use scooters to get around the house. He's 84, she's 71. Now, that's pretty impressive to be commissioning a piece of contemporary architecture at that age. They are really impressive people, and they're wonderful people. And the making of this building was an absolute joy. I have to say, it was, they were fantastic clients, brilliant brief, amazing site, design team all pulled together, everybody pulled together, and I think that really came from Michael and Jean, very inspirational people. And to top it all, Fantastic contractor. And to get all of those in one project is really quite rare. And a testament, I think, to their attitude towards it particularly. And I'll tell you about the contractor a little bit later. He was, uh, it, it was a design, it ended up as a design build contract. I'll tell you now, in fact, it ended up as a design build contract. We, we'd recommended you must go out for tender. And they said, no, Chris Millen is going to build it. He's, he's, local chap in the forest. Never done anything in concrete like this before. He'd done some very good low-energy timber frame housing. Small contractor. Um, and we said, oh, I don't think that's right. You know, best value, all the RIBA training, etc., etc." He said, no, 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 he's going to build it for us. Okay. And we were novated to him. And he was fantastic. It was absolutely the way design build should work. He brought to the table his expertise He's a, he's a contractor, he's got the context, he's got the knowledge. We, we take the word architect, master builder, but actually we do very little building. If you've ever seen me trying to hit a nail into a piece of wood, no good at all, you know. So uh, that was, it was a superb relationship and it was one that was really based on a bucket load of trust in the end and everybody enjoyed the whole process. It was marvellous. And uh, talking about artwork, I've always wanted, I liked, I enjoyed Hellman's, uh, Hellman's cartoons over the years. And here we are. It's not the Sterling Awards. As you know, it was nominated for the 2016 Sterling Awards. It's the Crackling Prize shortlist. And there you have us, Kazi House, in the forest of Greenbelt. Yeah, it's in Greenbelt. And by Sirloin and Co. I hope I never get knighted. But it was lovely to see it. This is the site when we first arrived there in 2010. Stormy Castle was 2008. This is 2010, so they're following on from one another. And it's four acres of sloping site, south-facing. You've got the upper meadow. You've got a 
driveway here off the lane in, sorry, off the lane there, and this sort of level plateau where the existing house is and a series of outbuildings. That's looking up the driveway. We liked that drive. We really loved that drive and thought it's such a strong east-west access. We ought to keep it and use it. We also felt, again, in the, the idea of the continuity of time, that we ought in some way to use these existing buildings. If you peep over the hedge of that driveway, you start to get a feeling of what amazing views there are. Staggering. Since the, the house has been completed, this, they've allowed this hedge to grow massively, so you actually get no sense of what is beyond the hedge. You almost go down a tunnel. They're training it now to become an arched entrance into the house. And you'll see sketches of this and photographs of it later. Now, there are the outbuildings. This is the garage and pigsty. View of it from the other end of it. And various shots, the house itself, the driveway still coming in here. And you can see it on the plan. And as I say, we wanted to use it. Now, the planners thought that this was a fine example of forest architecture. And that if we were to uh, extend it, it should be done in a conventional manner. Well, as you can imagine, we had slightly different ideas. This was the concept. What we thought, there's the existing buildings. We would take the roofs off the existing buildings, leave their footprints as, as open vessels, if you like and then a wrap around it, the new envelope of the house, leaving the interiors of the existing buildings as open courtyards and drag the upper meadow over the top, making it a continuous, seamless connection, almost lifting up the site and popping the building under. It's been described, this is an Andy Goldsworthy sculpture, it's been described as a little mini village almost, where you've got these objects within the space. And it, I've been fascinated, I think we probably all are to different degrees, but fascinated with space. We don't just wrap a building, it's what's contained within it and what's left around it. It's, it's what's not there. And there's a lovely quote which I'm going to read here. from Ayn Rand 1947 you may have read the book it's called The Fountainhead and she writes and thus the intrinsic significance of our craft lies in the philosophical fact that we deal in nothing this is us architects we deal in nothing we create emptiness through which certain physical bodies are to move by emptiness I mean what is commonly known as rooms Thus, it is only the crass layman, an occasional planner and developer, that's my addition, who thinks that we put up stone walls. We do nothing of the kind. We put up emptiness. Absence is superior to presence. Nothing is superior to something. In other words, it's the space that matters. It's not the walls or what the walls are made of. It's not the object. And we were deliberately playing down the object. And I think, in a way... Um, 
This summarizes it. Um, fabulous sculpture, the Turner Prize winning sculpture. And in fact, she was a, a, a judge on the, um, on the uh, Sterling Prize this year. So it was great to have her here and to look at it. But uh, again, I'll give you another quote here from Peter Zumpfer, um, who, who writes, we exist in universal space. Architecture borrows some of it. Isn't that lovely? Borrows some of it. It brings in that idea of time, of decay, of, of recycling. Architecture borrows some of it. It becomes a contained space, that's the contained space, within a containing space. So the bigger picture. Off the philosophy and back to the sketches in the design process. Here we are, that was one of my very first sketches of the driveway leading up to this quiet, low-level house. Much less impact from the public domain than the previous house with its gable end poking up. And this is how we design. We work with our sketchbooks in all meetings. We sketch with the client. We sketch with the design team. And these become the minutes of the meetings. And they describe so much more, I think, than any written notes. I mean, you can see the concept of the lid coming across, the retention of the old stone walls, the concrete bleeding in to act as a ring beam to hold the old stone above. And you walk your way through the building and through the ideas. You'll see this stair later with my colleague James walking up to get onto the roof terrace. This is the earth courtyard, for example, a glazed screen wrapped around the beam of the front facade and the tree growing up through it. These are all early concepts that were retained and saw their way right through the whole project. And Jean, the age of 71, keeps soy sheep. So we had to even think about how to get sheep from the lower meadow to the upper meadow across the driveway without letting them run up and down. And here's another example of how we're going to build it and make sure it's the thoroughbred horse and not the camel. Schizophrenic architect, that's me. I love the precision that you get from something like glass, getting that tolerance to work. It drives builders nuts. And yet the other side of me also loves this rusty, arty, it's like the bleeding watercolours. It, it's the uncontrollable. But you've got to also, ha you've got to have a balance between the two. Even if it's the uncontrollable, you've got to contain it. And that's one of the things that I love about our principal material for this job, which is concrete. Now, in both projects, Stormy Castle and Outhouse, we, we thought long and hard about the credentials of concrete. Yeah, okay, we, we know it's, it's, it's not the best of materials from an environmental point of view. We did use 40% in this instance of pulverised fuel ash, P, PFA, as a cement substitute. And our justification for using it, that we were happy with the argument about, was it's going to be an earth shelter house. It's the landscape, it's the environment that is so important, the visual environment here. So we are going to hunker this house into the hill, we're going to bury it. Therefore, concrete is 
the logical material. Couple with that longevity. So you got a long life out of this fella. And we also looked at local suppliers. And after weighing all of those up in a debate, that was the way we went forward. And we looked at that with Stormy Castle very, very early on. And as a consequence, having learned from that project, did the same on Stormy Castle, on uh, Outhouse. And um, we got the aggregates and things from within a very close range. And we went to UWE. And we looked at the concrete samples there um, and just took the clients with us and we talked about it. They loved the concrete. It had come from them as much as it had come from us. They said they thought it was a gorgeous material on which to hang art. They felt it took art very well as a, a neutral but rich velvety feel. And it, it, it's fascinating that public response to concrete is, Ooh, it's brutal, it's horrible, it's cold. And yet they're quite happy with a white plastered wall, which when you think about it, is really pretty dead quite often. You know, so you can get fantastic textures and patterns and qualities out of the material. And having started Stormy Castle, we had, as a consequence, learnt a lot and we had a lot of examples ourselves um, to, to show and to determine the quality that we wanted. It's one of those unpredictable materials um, in a strange way, a little bit like timber, the grain of timber. Sometimes it, it's absolutely gorgeous, sometimes it's not so nice. There are lots of materials like that, but it's a particularly difficult one to use and particularly difficult uh, in situ casting because of quality control and weather. The scheme itself, it went through a few variations, always following the same philosophy, though. We had the, the strong street, the separation of the work units hunkered into the hill at the back, the north side, service um, side there, and then the living at this portion. It shrank, though, because not, not just for budget. The clients were, were great at perceiving space. And they say, no, this is too generous, a size of a living room for us. They, they, they understood volume. And... Um, we also made models, of course, working models to help convey the essence of the scheme. Not very beautiful models, but working models, and they served a, very much served a purpose. Then, as the scheme progressed over the months, we honed down on one particular solution, and this was basically heading towards it. This, this was the way it was going to be. South elevation here, long and low in the landscape, short east and west elevations, um, the driveway heading down and, and piercing right through the street, right through the, through the centre gallery space of the house. And we come to the planning drawings. I particularly like when I've got to draw elevations showing the context. It drives me nuts when you see, even, even in suburban uh, situations where people have, have designed extensions and they're floating in space, you know. There's no neighbourhood context shown, there's no ground conditions, there's no sense of place. I think it makes you a better designer if you take the time to really understand the site and take the time to draw it and show it. It, it, it informs you. And these are what I call threshold drawings. Here is, here is the uh, street entrance, this is, is the eastern approach elevation and it shows the threshold of the building 
and you can see the same here. The skin of the building at the other end. This is at the, uh, at the west end. And you'll see this uh, pond here, the pool here, the pool courtyard and the perimeter wall in due course in the photographs. And the south elevation, again showing the threshold condition and the separation between outside and inside. And these buildings here are the retained original stone. Now therein lies a story. For two reasons, I'll tell you the first reason. This stone was taken down. Those existing buildings were removed, which we thought was a tragedy. We didn't know if the stone was going to be beautiful or not because it was rendered. Um, when we started to take the render off, it was beautiful. The client, though, felt that it wasn't great for hanging their artwork and they would have had, had to use it for that purpose. But the real killer at the end, and this is how not unjoined up our system is, Mr. Fatman said if we kept those stone walls, this would be an extension. Fat. If we take those stone walls down, it's a new build. No fat. Now, where is the sense in that? When we're trying to preserve, conserve, find new uses for existing buildings, it's bonkers. So they came down. We rebuilt them exactly as they are in concrete, but we used a different type of concrete. We used black concrete. We dyed it black, the concrete of death. to differentiate it between the new work and what was there, the history, to identify as a continuity. Started to put it through the computer as well, drawing sections, this is the earth courtyard, showing the strategy of the lid coming over the top. And we were, at this point, well we discussed the, the concept very early on with the planners and they were very supportive of it until we got in and actually lodged the application then they weren't so happy. And we spent a long time with them turning around a recommendation for refusal to a recommendation for approval. And finally, at the actual committee, I stood up and did a, a little talk. And we'd canvassed all of the local um, councillors in the forest. And we got a unanimous yes for it. But it, it takes a lot of extra work and time and commitment to actually get there. It's very easy to, for them just to say no, because it's different. And it's, it is a tad of a struggle. I hope, I just hope, that they'll take time now to reflect on this, to look at it, to see what accolades it has been given and how it, in reality, sits very, very comfortably within the site, which I hope to show you in the photographs now. We, in order to convince them and we, we did photo montages as well as just our drawings. And here is the roof plan as it was finally built. You can see the courtyards, earth, air, fire, the old house, and water, the old garage and pigsty. And there's the driveway coming all the way through. And there's the pool courtyard at the end. So let's go underneath the lid. And there are the plans. The four courtyards again. You can now see the gallery going through the middle. One studio, two studios, a central meeting space, two bedrooms, one for Jean, one for Michael, 
sitting space, dining, kitchen, little nip around to the front door, and their naturally ventilated larder. The air courtyard is not strictly a courtyard. It was at one point. It's a courtyard with a lid on it. It's a bit of a cheat. There is the main driveway, the access through that they use as their gallery and as a means of separation between work and live. The two studios, the living accommodation, and at the back there, a guest bedroom that actually has natural light, another cord space out, which is Michael's um, sculpture courtyard, um, and uh, plant room, ensuite, and utility space there, and stores here. And of course, we made a model. So useful. And then we made the building. Now, again, we're talking about environment and uh, capturing the sun and protecting from the wind and protecting from the rain and enjoying the sound of water, thermally, massively insulated, getting all of that stuff into the Forest of Dean up these tiny little country lanes, particularly fellas like this, was no easy task. And Chris Milliner, who had been the contractor I mentioned, who had been brought on early, got involved in these discussions of the logistics of how are we going to make this property. And we worked planned routes. You could only come in one way, in one direction, with the concrete lorries, etc., etc. And get the hardest one was getting getting the crane in. But once we got it in, in bits, bingo, we were ready to go. And the other factor was the weather. I mean, that is beautiful, isn't that? It? That's the Y Valley, the mist on the Y Valley, sun coming out, gorgeous. But it wasn't always like that. Sometimes it was like that. Now, when you're trying to work in the middle of nowhere and, of course, stick to a program, joke. Um, yeah, it, it had its challenges. Also, with concrete samples, Chris brought a couple of guys in, um, specialist subcontractors, uh, to assist, and we cast samples in order to get to this standard that we knew we wanted. We used all of these um, test panels, but they were all done in areas that we knew were either going to be covered, retained, etc. So they weren't wasted, and it was a journey that we went on together until we got to the standard that we actually wanted. And you forget that concrete isn't just concrete. There's lots of gubbins that goes with it. And yeah, for me, I, I still, I'm, well, I'm still a kid. I still feel like a kid. I'm, it's playing with toys. It's Meccano. It's Lego. It's all of this stuff, but it's on a big scale. And seeing all that, I mean, this is almost artwork in itself, I think. It's quite beautiful. And I, I get so excited when I walk around site and see things coming out of the ground. And things that you've held in your imagination, in your mind, for so many years, because it takes a long time. I mean, here we are, 2016, and started this six years ago, 2010. And you hold these things in your mind. And yes, you've done the drawings. Yes, you've made the models. But is it going to be right? Is the scale going to be right? Is the light going to be right? Have you got it right? And you kind of worry, but you also get very, very excited by it all. And then you start seeing them put all of this messy stuff together. And how they do it, I don't know. It's brilliant. Um, you get all the walls in the right place most of the time. And uh, you see it coming out. But still, you don't know that what you have in your mind is what they're going to build. And then, ooh, 
we start, ooh, this is interesting. It's, it's the retaining wall at the back of the site. And you start to get a feel, but because it's not enclosed space, it's these big, as we left the original buildings, they're just, they're just vessels there. Until you put the lid on, you don't really know. And it stays strangely, it's an odd feeling. The scale of the spaces isn't complete. And you will find that when you go on site. I mean, it changes when you put furniture into a building. or you, If you decorate, it, it, it changes the sense of the space. So you're still not sure yet. And then along comes more metal. And those, those gaps that you could see, that you could walk around, suddenly get all closed up again because you're going to cast the lid. And this is, it's at this time that we got that beautiful leaf flutter onto the onto the formwork, but it's all crowded out again. You know, oh, I just want to see what the space is like. It's back to wrapping space, and you can't, until the lid goes on. And then you start walking around, and you think, ooh, it was right to put that door there. Ooh, sorry, with that view out. Ooh, doesn't the roof light work on the draping light down that back wall? And you start to get a fantastic, or, or you don't if you've got it wrong. I think, I think we got it right on this one. So. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it at this stage. And you're thinking, yeah, starting to actually come together. And all the bits and pieces come. And you see, again, it's like that Shakespeare quote about the uh, sundial telling you what time of day and what's going on. And so you're inside, inside, outside house, looking inside and outside. That's a curvy shot. There's not a curve in the building. It's one of my panoramas. It sort of gives you a sense of the space that was coming out of it. And then nearing completion, we're just backfilling against the retaining wall. This is again is from the, the lane looking across the upper meadow as it slopes down. And once more, you know, it's, and we haven't finished it here, um, it's not a conspicuous 6,000 square feet, uh, 5,000 square feet. It's not shouty and standing out. The house at the back, with its pitched roof and its, you know, executive homes, five bedrooms, much, much noisier than this fella. And that's the entrance. Remember that sketch I showed you? And you can see how the hedges have grown up, so you can't peep over the top and see the view. So it's all being held back for a surprise. And as you get closer, you realize something is definitely going on. You can see the length of the street. That wall at the end is by that pool courtyard. You see right through the whole building because they show their artwork. So this becomes a public venue, in effect. So it had to have a, a draw through, and it worked as that device between separation of live and work. And underneath the entrance canopy, that's the stores building on the left, and looking back, in an easterly direction towards the entrance to the site. Now, before we go inside, we go up to the roof. That's my colleague James wandering up there. You remember there was a sketch from the sketchbook early on, and I said you'll see it later. That's it, pretty loyal and true to the concept. And this is up on the roof. Heck of a view off that roof. Very minimal. And you can see how seamless it is. This is just on completion. Um, seamless it is with the upper meadow, viewed there from the uh, western edge of the upper meadow. And as the scars of construction are healed, 
so nature starts to reclaim it and reclaim it and look at that for a roof that's not a bad roof come on guys I wouldn't mind a roof like that if any of you saw um, Kevin McLeod saw the um, grand designs the other Thursday it wasn't that court uh, yes it was it was that courtyard just there that he was he was sitting on and say and you just saw him sitting and nibbling at the the plants and then it panned back and you realised he was sitting on the edge of something and I thought, oh, health and safety building is on. <laughs> I am in so much trouble. And look how it hunkers in. This is on the eastern edge of the building where the, the land drops away slightly and the building peeps out of the ground. And uh, that's Michael's courtyard that I mentioned earlier, the, the sculpture courtyard. So he gets light into it, um, air into the studio as well as through the roof lights, of course, and you're able to get this clear story um, windows in to uh, some of the service, um, service areas. Um, one of the judges was from Richard Rogers' partnership, and uh, when she saw the plant room, she said, oh, a plant room with a window! <laughs> I was very pl proud of that. <laughs> From the roof, you can read these courtyards. This is the earth courtyard, the front fascia beam, the huge chimney, which sadly they've chosen, they don't need the heat, um, so they're, not, they're actually not using it. Um, but it's there, it's available, and in future, again, as I say, when somebody else takes over this house in due course, I'm sure they will use it. It's there for the using. And that's looking down into the earth courtyard. That's Michael's bedroom there with the screen he designed and painted for the job. And there's Jean. Isn't she lovely? In her, I say her, the larder. Um, naturally ventilated one. You can almost see the air coming through. That's, that's why I put that photograph in. And the fire courtyard. That's how big the original house was after we'd stripped back all of the more recent extensions. Pretty small space. And you think about it, and down actually in the fire courtyard, the reason they call it the fire courtyard is because that's where they had their barbecue. So it, it, all, it does all mean something. And the water courtyard, which is the old pigsty and garage. Um, beautiful space. Again, it's all to do with shelter and bringing light and ventilation into quite a deep plan building so I think it's a really interesting technique and out at the back at the far west of the gallery street you have the pool courtyard and that's the stone that we reused from taking down the original buildings the other side of that wall is a spur of office dyke and one of the RIBA judges talked about the gallery street he said there's a front door at one end and whales at the other. <laughs> so, well, that's quite nice. And that's the view from Offers Dyke, Maine. I mean, hardly something for the planners to be afraid of, and for people to be afraid of. It doesn't shout at you. Even if you do a zoom in, it's fragmented by nature, by the landscaping. It's not one big lump. It looks that way when you're up on um, a helicopter or a, like another buzzard. Or you've got a drone flying around, which they did for the BBC filming, and there were complaints from all the neighbours <laughs> about the drone. 
hey-ho. As you walk along the spur of Offa's Dyke, you still only get little glimpses as you walk past. It doesn't, it's a quiet building. And if you're lucky enough to be invited in, you go through their back door and you enter the west, it's the uh, pond courtyard, pool courtyard again. And you get a glimpse of this floating building. I think that's another reason I love concrete. It can be so heavy or it can also be so light, depending on the detailing. And we wanted it not just to kiss the ground there lightly and just hover above it. And it can do it. And uh, much of the landscaping has been done by the clients themselves. The contractors fell so much in love with the clients, they came of their own volition on weekends to, do, to help them with the landscaping, free of charge. They're amazing people. I, I wish I could do that. I mean, I have to pay my staff, actually. <laughs> no, and they were, they were superb. Everybody pulled in the right direction and made it happen. And as it changes over the seasons and it matures, this was Jean's idea of the pond which is behind us, of giving an impression of a flowing stream down with, with grasses. Great person to work with. And looking back there, in a northerly direction towards the pond, which is just there. That's Jean's studio and the end of the street. The southwest corner. This is the ha-ha uh, to protect the house from invading sheep. And again, using the stone that we found on site and from the dismantled outbuildings, etc. Nothing was taken away. That's that corner room. That's... That's Jean's bedroom, which you'll see later um, when we get inside the house. There's the length of the beam. And again, like Stormy Castle, you only start to appreciate what you're dealing with once you're invited in and once you're within the confines of the site. From all of the perimeter views, it's hunkered, it's disappeared, it's quiet. The earth courtyard. Michael's bedroom there. That's the gallery street. This is the sitting room. And further along, sitting room, kitchen here, dining room. Just you can see the chairs there and an occasional solid panel. And as the landscaping matures, so it even plays down, again, the impact of the building, it becomes even less visible. From further down the lower meadow, looking back at it, and then onto the walkway itself. That's looking in an easterly direction. That's, that's also looking in an easterly direction. Both looking in an easterly direction. This looking in a westerly direction. And you may have noticed a bit of a texture here. I, because I'm a, a father of a disabled son, and now my wife is disabled as well, I'm pretty good with disability. And um, flush inside, outside is a big thing for me. Um, we do it in all houses, again, thinking of the future, it could happen to any of us. And I think this 150 step nonsense is nonsense. If you can get it flush, make it flush. That's what it is. When we'd reap the meadow, we saved the ferns. We, how are you going to get a non-slip finish? It's great to have the polished concrete on the inside, but you don't want your clients walking outside and going and over. So we suggested pressing the plants into the concrete. 
Jean thought it was great. A lot of her artwork is based on plants. And uh, she started. And uh, that walkway is 53 metres long. It's, it's quite a length. And um, she, she wanted to do them all. But the contractors, I, I, I've been misreported on this, that she did every inch. Um, I had it wrong. Um, she actually did quite a bit of it, but they helped. They couldn't see her down on her hands and knees all the way. And they got the hang of it, and they loved it. And it's become their house as a result. It's a, it's a real piece of art. It's gorgeous. And as you get to the far end, by the kitchen, the eastern end, um, this is the original orchard, which we retained and worked around. You can walk along the walkway here and just pluck an apple from the tree, just like that one. And it's gorgeous, and you've got all the herbs there. It's all accessible adjacent to the kitchen, and it's facing east, where the easterly light comes in. It all makes sense. And uh, late on, this is in the orchard, late on in the, um, in the program, uh, they decided, the client decided that they, they wanted some more storage for their garden equipment, etc., etc. That's our site hut. We left it for them, clad it in timber, put some sedum on the roof to match rosy apples, of course, and uh, it makes a superb little outbuilding and uh, storage, storage shed, storage facility. The only other building that then we, we then added in is a sheep shelter, and we treated it likewise. I put a little sedum roof on it. Fun. So here we are back at the main entrance to the house looking along the driveway. Let's go in. There is your gallery street. Jean's just preparing to hang for a, a show. And you can see the length of it all the way down to the west end and the, and the pond courtyard, the pool courtyard. And you can see the black concrete of death as well on the right there, because that's the old garage and pigsty. And up until now, you haven't had a real appreciation, because of the height of the hedges, of the potential views. And then for the first time, by the front door, you get this glimpse of something special beyond. But you get taken down the length, as there's the front door, down the length of this street. That's looking down towards the West End, the Earth Courtyard here. And halfway down the street, you spin around, you look in, that's the garage. Not a bad garage, I wouldn't mind a garage like that. And the pigsty with the water in it. And turn around and there's your sit main sitting space, earth courtyard on your right and here. You see. Now look at the occupation compared to Stormy Castle. This is the difference between a house and a home. They've taken something that could be, just like Stormy Castle, very minimal, but they've put in all of this furniture. Funny enough, I thought this was intentional, uh, offered a skew. Um, when Jean saw the photographs, these professional photographers, but, oh, I didn't straighten the rug. <laughs> she wanted it straight. But I think it kind of works offered a skew. It's just, it's just there, and they've got a lifetime of their belongings that they brought with us. And they're all beautiful in their own way. So they sit in this new old. It's like the continuity of time. It's, I think it's fantastic. Whereas Eric and Debbie have spent their life as, as business people, traveling all the time. They've lived in five-star hotels. That's how they want to live now. That's what they think 
that's what appeals to them. That's their life. So they've paired it back and it feels more, well, more minimal. It's, it's, it's much less, they haven't got the belongings in Stormy Castle that they've accumulated over, years, over the years. Michael and Jean have. And you've got that stunning, stunning view. Fantastic. I mean, you know, when you think back to the planning requires, and we want it to be in keeping, you know, nice little windows. And No. I mean, that's what it's about. The beauty of the Forest of Dean. Michael sitting in, enjoying reading in the sitting room, and you see you get these connections through. Walk around things. It's why I said it was like a little village with objects in the middle. And the kitchen. Jean's bedroom, southwest corner. Nice place for a bath. I think Jean's about this big. I wouldn't fit in that. She got a bath specially, so she doesn't slip down and drown. Michael's bedroom, looking onto the earth courtyard. He carved these himself. Made his bed. <laughs> and there's his screen that he painted as well. He's been so creative since he's moved into this house. It's unbelievable. And at the crossover, halfway down the gallery street, where you turn into the sitting room here, if you turn in the other direction, north, you head into the gallery spaces. And they're hunkered into the hill, as I've said. But they're not dark spaces. Look at that. There's the sculpture courtyard, and here's the roof light. Now, Michael does big artworks. So part of the introduction of the roof lights, apart from natural light as well, was that he could put these four-meter-high canvases up and see them and work on them. Fantastic place, industrious. And the link between the two spaces. This is the, the black wall of death of the old house. Let's travel down, halfway down to the meeting point, which is here. They each have their own separate studios. They like to work alone, but they like to get together. So this is why it's designed around their needs. This is why it's specific very much for them. And then you turn around, and you've got this view from the inside to the old footprint of the house, the fire courtyard, through the glass to the gallery street, through the glass to the earth courtyard, out onto the walkway, and then the Forest of Dean beyond. So it's this layering, but constant contact with different parts of the site, different qualities of light, different qualities of space, shelter, exposure and into Jean's courtyard. There she is working away, and there's the pool courtyard at the end and the stone wall and office dyke, Wales. Materials. We prepared this materials board for the um, AJ. It's pretty basic, simple materials. Um, charred wood for the timber cladding panels. It's, it's quite a didactic building that we used the cladding panels where we wanted solid but not structural infill. Um, and we, it's a Japanese technique and I think it's really beautiful. It's got a softness and a natural feel to it that paints and stains don't do it successfully. Water for the water courtyard, natural ventilation for the 
air courtyard and earth for the earth courtyard. So it's the roof plan, but showing the materials we've used and, of course, ferns. And there's back to the leaf that was a beautiful, happy accident. The imprints of the ferns on the walkway, the natural materials on the roof, and the concrete and the art. And we devised this hanging system. Again, that shows early thought about detail, this macro-micro all the time. So you don't just look at this big picture. You're actually in there, living in the, in the dwelling. And um, we devised that. It's like the old picture rail in many respects, but it's part of the concrete, the separation between the roof and the wall and these little metal hangers that are totally adjustable and because they're changing them all the time and you don't want to be drilling holes in walls or have battens or anything like that. And it seemed like a natty solution. Outside, the other materials of salvaged stone. You can see it was beautiful. We had a lovely stonemason who rebuilt it as a dry stone wall. Uh, Gabian baskets to form the ha-ha uh, for the sheep. And the burnt timber, and of course my favourite use of glass. How beautiful it is. It, as I say, you see through, you see back. So these are the similarities in the shell with Stormy Castle. And look how the light falls on the concrete. And that's what Michael and Jean loved, and that's what they fell in love with and asked us to achieve, and I hope we have. And I, I adore the sort of abstract shapes that you can get from strong orthogonal design like this. And look, I mean, that could be, you could pass it off as marble. It's not, it's at least the upstand of a light well. You know, how, you know, how can that be said to be a cold, hard material? I just don't get it. I think it's a throwback to the sort of 60s use of concrete and the problems that were associated with a lot of the system build, tower blocks, etc. This is the, a corner of the concrete. And you look at the connection. This is why I think, the, again, the, the client was so happy to go with it. The next slide is one of Jean's artworks. That's the black and the grey concrete. It's one of her drawings called Ground Plots. It's very close. And one of Michael's drawings. And even when Michael uses colour in his art, it's still got the same grain that you find in a concrete, the same swirls. Isn't that painterly? That's one of the corners of the, one of the walls. I think it's a delightful material. One of Michael's art pieces, paintings. And the polished floor. Chris Milliner had never polished a floor before. He learned, he taught himself, he practised until he got it to a stage, he showed us samples. He was a wonderful contractor. And Jean's ferns. And a bone. But it shows how it sits beautifully against the, uh, against the concrete backdrop and the minimalist glass. And so to evening. Now, us architects, we can draw all we jolly well like. We can draw and draw and draw. But if you haven't got somebody who's going to make something for you, you're in trouble. And part of getting this is working as a team, everybody pulling together and getting the right person to build it. And I have to say we were lucky enough to have that on this project. So we ended the stormy castle with an evening shot saying good night. And now I end with an evening shot of outhouse and I say good night. Thank you very much. Thank you.
thank you, Chris, for that absolutely um, beautiful talk about two beautiful buildings. A really great description of the design process of those two, two projects. Um, are there any questions? I'm sure there's lots of questions people would like to ask Chris about, about the work. There's one right at the back to start with. Is there a, is there a roving mic? Mm. What were the main concerns that the officers raised? Uh, not in keeping. And our argument was we're not trying to be in keeping with the architecture, we're trying to be in keeping with the <coughs> natural landscape and the environment. And uh, it, it, it took, um, again, it's just more and more information you have to feed in and, and argue your case and spend a ridiculous amount of time um, making your case. And just one other comment on the back of that. It's interesting that the original building seems to be was fairly modest and actually I appreciate the way in which the design concept has been worked through. Um, the building works very well in the landscape in my view, but in terms of the floor area, mm. if you're looking at strictly a replacement zone, it's, it's significantly greater than what you've got. So It, it, it was, and the same applied to Stormy Castle. But our argument is floor plans are flat things. Architecture is to do with three dimensions. Yes, okay, it's a bigger footprint, but it's less impact. It's lower, it's hunkered, it's, it's concealed, it's considered. It's, not, it, it's back to the Frank Lloyd Wright, it's, it becomes of the hill, not sitting on the hill. And... Um, we did argue that. One of, one of the big difficulties we had in the um, outhouse project was that the planners were saying, well, no, it's, it doesn't warrant uh, a replacement dwelling. As I said, this is a very fine example of forest architecture. Um, it doesn't warrant a replacement because its condition is not that bad and it can be restored and extended. Well, you know... We argued that's not the case. You'll never meet current environmental standards. You couldn't improve them beyond that, and, you and we can't meet the client's brief. And interestingly, what we did, which was a pretty smart tactic, was we got their building regs um, department to come out, and this is, this is a lot of departments not talking to one another. It's more not joined up stuff, I think. Um, they came out and they, we asked them to assess it and gave them our reports and things. And they said, yeah, you're right. It's, it's really substandard. So as soon as they'd said that, it freed it up. I may be doing them a bit of injustice. I mean, maybe they, they wanted it but didn't want to be seen to want it. I don't know. But there's, there's a, there's a, there is an issue, I feel, with planners at the, the planning departments at the moment because they're so under-resourced. Their default is always caution. And um, I think the world's a changing place, and it would be better. I'd love to see more architects on planning, in planning departments, you know, to actually input um, a different expertise and, and start working together again more. And, and this, this whole thing of uh, the pre-application, the amount of information that one how has to put in for a pre-application pre almost makes, what's the point? It's going to take as long as a full application. Why not just put a full application in? No, and it's it's very unreliable. 
So in the end, we got their full support, and they were great, I have to say. But it was a, it was a process of education and working, working together and taking time. With the planners and the building regs, you mean? No, with the councillors, and you were trying to get we, them on your side before the community. Yeah, we prepared, um, we prepared a leaflet, um, giving 10 salient points. We did the same for um, Stormy Castle, and it was more like a, a paragraph 55 process, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I, it, we haven't got paragraph 55 in Wales, but we, we ha did have got the design commission for Wales, so we made representations there, which gives a lot of weight then to an authority t in order to support. Um, this was a re in outhouse; it was it was a, a replacement dwelling, so it wasn't actually new dwelling in the countryside as such. So it wasn't a paragraph fifty-five, um, but it, it's it's a case of, of talking and showing. But it it does take a disproportionate amount of time related to the old blessed fee. You know, and you do it because you love it and you want it and you believe in it. And um, yeah. yeah. But sorry, did I answer your question? Was that enough? Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it's a good idea because, well, if there's an officer report going around and then there's a councillor and there's twelve items to go through on a committee mm. and then trolling through a million pages, it's nice to have that kind of little snapshot that yeah. they can pull up and have a little reminder of. Yep. Yeah, and, and with the Stormy Castle one, we did actually attend a community group meeting, um, and, and that was very successful, that was great. There wasn't such a thing in, in the forest for us, and we, so we did just distribute it out. Um, but again, the clients are well known there, they're locals. I mean, same, same in fairness with um, Eric and Debbie, they're, their family are from the area, so it's not as if they're um, big city dwellers from the capital coming down for a holiday home in Wales or the Forest of Dean, they were embedded in the area. So they had local knowledge and, and people knew of them. Uh, Michael and Jean's son runs uh, one of the big organic farms nearby and runs courses and sorts of um, eco matters. So yeah, they are well embedded there. So they had a support. Any other questions? Sorry, you're supposed to be doing that, aren't you? That's all right. <laughs> oh, microphone, microphone. Um, when working with artists as your clients, um, how much design freedom do you get? Or are there any constraints compared to other sorts of clients? Um, no, they were absolutely fantastic. Um, Eric and Debbie were as well, though they're not artists. Um, they gave the best, both of them, gave the best type of brief I think you can get, which isn't just a dry schedule of accommodation and physical requirements. They talked about atmospheres um, and kind of quality of spaces and how they lived and flow. And it's really understanding we're all different. Um, it, it spins back to what I was saying about speculative housing. It's a real difficulty that if you don't know who your end user is to be specific and therefore we should design in flexibility where we don't know the end user but where you do know the end user you do get that opportunity to really discuss and yeah you have to uh, 
I have to ask some pretty intimate questions. You know, I have to get to know each other. They've adopted me now. I'm their surrogate son, and so is Chris Miller now. You know, I pop up there all the time. <laughs> How do you balance the sort of amazing opportunities of the, that come from your drawing process with the watercolours and the errors that occur and the leaves that appear in the concrete with this sort of you know, really strong uh, modernism um, within the architecture? And when does an error become an error? Uh, an error becomes an error and it, it doesn't have to be your error or somebody else's error. It, you know it, you feel it. Um, it it's why specifications are s so difficult to write for these things. I, I remember when I was um, teaching in, in the Welsh School of Architecture, one of the things I used to get students to do was to write a specification for making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And it would be amazing how many people would say, well, you get a cup and you put water in it and some coffee and stir it, right? So you get a ladle and you put that much coffee in and you put cold water in. That's not a nice cup of coffee. That's an error. Uh, so it, but it, it, so there's a balance between being able to be precise and letting the material kind of do its own thing as well. I don't, I, I don't know the answer to it, really, to be honest. You do just feel it. But you do your best to show and convey through material samples, through uh, mock-ups, through good drawing and good detailing what you're trying to achieve. And then if, if you have got a good team working for you, and as a point I made at the end, it's all down to the guy who's making it because it's out of your hands. Yes, you can condemn, you can shout, you can make, take it down and do it again and be Mr. Nasty Architect. Um, it's pretty demoralizing, all of that. It's much better if you can all go together on the same journey and really strive for it. And that's, that's how we do it. We try to work really closely with every, every facet of the, of the team. I think we've got time for maybe one more question. If there are any other. Can I ask what the budget was? Yeah, I'm not allowed to tell you it was one and a half million, was I? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> it, I, it's not that. I really don't know, um, and I'm not av avoiding it here. Um, I can tell you that um, when we, we had a QS on board early, um, but when it went to design and build, it literally was an open book between the client and the contractor, and he went along and explained it. I wasn't involved with it at all, um, but we were at 1.2. Now, for your 6,000, 5,000, sorry, feet and meters, um, for your 500 square meters, that's, that's of that type of construction, I think that's pretty, pretty okay. Um, particularly when I was judging um, House of the Year and I went, did a few in London. <laughs> um, some of the costs per square meter there are sort of between six and ten thousand pounds per square meter on certain things, not just on the housing, but on other projects as well. And you think, wow, that's a different world. And the further west you go, it tends to drop a little bit. <laughs> okay.
Okay. I think time, time to go and have something to eat and drink then. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chris, once again for uh, an excellent and engaging talk, and thank you all for coming. Just to remind you again about uh, the upcoming Architecture Centre uh, event next week on the 8th. Um, and look out for updates about the next two design thinking events in the new year. Thank you, Chris. Thank you all very much. Thank you.